Hey, deserving listeners, I thought I would answer patron emails. So here we go. This first email is from Cressida from Toronto. She writes, I was a troubled teen. My parents tricked me into coming in for family therapy. They knew I wouldn't agree to it, so they figured they, would, they wouldn't tell me until I got there. The therapist learned what had happened and canceled the session. Mortified by that experience since, I viewed therapy as a negative th- thing or an unnecessary thing. Now, in my almost mid-30s, I've been thinking about seeking help. My family physician suggested I try CBT therapy. Four years later, I still have a struggle to look into it. I find it especially hard because there are so many professionals out there, and choosing one is incredibly daunting to me. I have trust issues and a heap of doubts. Can you provide some general perspective and maybe some updates on some key things to look for when it comes to choosing a therapist? When will I know? Or are there any good questions I should ask that could help me determine if I'm in the right place, or is it just a trial and error thing? End of email. Yeah, I get a lot of emails about this, particularly lately. A lot of people trying to hire me as a therapist. If you're about to do that, just understand that my practice is full and probably will be for years to come. My clients currently have been long-term for a long time and will probably continue to be. And if anything, if even if I did have a client terminate with me, I suspect I wouldn't take new clients because uh, because a lot of you have become a patron of the podcast. It gives me more ability to spend more time on the podcast, which means I need to take time away from something, which sometimes means cutting back in my practice and my supervision practice. Anyway, so yeah, a lot of emails about this. And I think what's happening is people are discovering the podcast and they're inspired to seek therapy because they're like, huh, my impression of therapists was that they were all stupid and they judged people or they didn't listen very well. And I don't know, this guy seems to kind of know what he's talking about. Maybe I could find a therapist like him. And so people are inspired to seek therapy, which is one of the biggest compliments anyone could ever give me. Uh, So here's the thing. Some therapists are great and some therapists are not so great. Some therapists will be a good fit with you, as they say, and some are going to be a bad fit with you. Some are going to be good for the issues that you bring in and others are not. So as you say, yeah, you have to shop around. You got to take the time. The thing is, is that uh, it's similar to when people come to, so I play music stuff, right? Guitar, uh, drums and piano and this sort of thing. Whenever I play, occasionally someone will come up to me and just be like, oh, I've always wanted to learn how to play guitar. I always want to learn how to play piano. And sometimes they'll, you know, in the back of my head, I'm like, oh, great. You know, that's interesting. But sometimes they'll press the matter and they'll be like, you know, how, how do you think I could learn how to play guitar? What, what, what do I got? You know, what do I have to take lessons or something? And I, I'll usually say two things. I'll say, yeah, you know, you can take lessons. I can help. But the thing is, is that I've never taken a lesson for music in anything. I never took a guitar lesson. I never took a piano lesson. And I never took a lesson on how to write music. I just really wanted to do it. And so I made it happen. And that's usually when it comes down to these sorts of things. It's like if you, if you want it, you make it happen. So if you want to find a good therapist, people usually make it happen. Now, I also realize that some people live in communities in the United States around the world where it might be hard to find that therapist. And I don't know the answer to that question. I think there are some people who contact me from other countries and pockets of the United States and even people who just don't have the resources to pay for it, where therapy just might not even be possible. And so I don't want to give this impression to all of you listening right now that it's just a matter of looking. But if you live in a typical American, North American city or suburb, there in all likelihood you have medical insurance, not always, but in all likelihood you do. And in all likelihood, your medical insurance does pay for weekly sessions. And in all likelihood, there is a therapist within driving distance, sufficient driving distance of your home or work, who will be wonderful for you. But it might take a while to find that person. So you might have to try out 5, 10, 15 therapists before you find that person. But here's the thing. If you want to find that person, you will, if they're available. 
Some of you, that might not be possible. If it's not possible in your area, maybe looking at an online option, BetterHelp or Talkspace, these kinds of things. They, they can be good. They're a different form of therapy. It's not like in-office, in-person therapy at all. But it can be good depending on the issue. And many people find it to be very useful. So there's options like that. But so I don't know who I'm talking to. You know, some of you, uh, for you, it might be impossible for you to find the right therapist for you. And that makes me sad. That makes me sad that we live in a world where you don't have that available to you. The world would be such a better place if you did. For some of you out there, you do have that available to you, and it's just a matter of looking. Now, you might find that person in the first the first person you meet. Many people do. The, the first therapist they try out happens to be a good fit, a good match, someone they really like, and they see that person for many, many years. People came to me that way. They would be referred to me from their insurance. I used to take insurance years ago. And they would just call their insurance and say, okay, give me five therapists within my area that uh, talk about relationships. And they'd get my name and they'd call all five therapists and I would be the only one to call them back because therapists get, you know, get used to this as therapists are notoriously bad at, at getting back to people. And therapists who are listening out there, will you please just return the phone call or email? Just say, sorry, I'm full. I get emails Every day, uh, I get I get on average uh, from listeners. I probably I get dozens of emails a day, and five to ten of them are asking me for it to be a therapist. And I always get back to them. If I can get back to them, you surely can get back to them too. So please get back to them now. Many of the therapists out there are not listening to this podcast right now, so. Understand that when you email them, contact them, they might not get back to you. It's a matter of, it's a numbers game. You might have to call them back a number of times. Anyway, people would contact me, one of the five, and they would, and I'd say, "Yep, let's make an appointment." And they would hire me sight unseen, and things would work out. And I was the first therapist they ever came to. So you know that that happens sometimes, but maybe it takes a while. For me, uh, I the last therapist that I worked with. well, the last bout of therapy that I went through, I tried out a therapist that was close by. I shopped around for him, and I, he looked like he would be a good match for me. Uh, I, for some reason, I wanted an older guy. I wanted a guy who was older than me and who listened well, and he seemed like that kind of guy. And I went to the first session, and things went pretty well in second session, third session. But by the fifth session, I felt like it was just not working for me. I felt like he was kind of listening, but not really listening, if that makes any sense. Like he was very warm and he seemed to care, but I really just did not get that he got me. And I thought after five sessions, he should get me. So I fired him. You know, not, I just said, thanks for the five sessions. I think I'm going to stop therapy with you. And then I started up with another therapist and things went really well, and I was with her for a long time. Now, you would think as a therapist in Seattle who has trained hundreds of therapists and knows a lot of therapists, you'd think it wouldn't be that hard for me to find a therapist, but it actually kind of was because I didn't want to see someone that was connected to my life. And so many therapists in Seattle are connected to me professionally. (laughs) So anyway, but I found her. She was the second person I tried. And although she wasn't an exact match for me, she was good enough, and I saw her for many years. So, you know, even I, it it takes me a while. But what if she wasn't so great? Well, then I would have gone on to the third person. Uh, Some therapists are good for us for a period of time, and then then you grow out of them and you want to find a different therapist. I had a therapist when I was in graduate school in my 20s, in the mid-90s. And he was fantastic for me during that time. He is, uh, he was older, he was gay, he was very confrontational. And that's what I wanted. I wanted someone who would be very confrontational to me. I felt like I needed someone to kick my ass, I think is the way I put it back then. And I asked around and I got someone who would kick my ass and he, and he certainly did. I would get in cold sweats as I would drive to therapy. 
So that's another thing you can do is is ask around because sometimes that can help. It doesn't always, but sometimes it can. And after a time, I don't, I don't know, a number of years of, of seeing him, it, it just felt like it wasn't useful anymore. And I terminated with him and felt really good about our time together, but felt like that usefulness had sort of run its course. And I didn't go back to him. I appreciated that time. But so even if you choose someone for a while, maybe for six months, maybe for three months, maybe for six years, just, you know, it, it doesn't have to be the only therapist you see for your entire life. Now, if this podcast has inspired you to look for a therapist, I would look for the following labels, attachment-oriented, interpersonal, intersubjective, psychodynamic, dynamic, relational, systemic, humanistic, or existential. There's probably some other words in there too. So again, attachment-oriented, interpersonal, intersubjective, psychodynamic, or dynamic, relational, systemic, humanistic, existential. That covers a lot of bases, but... Many therapists will list these without really knowing what they are, so you have to be kind of careful. So, for example, when I say I'm an attachment-oriented therapist, anyone who's listened to the anyone who has listened to the podcast for a while will be able to know what I mean by that. But another therapist might call themselves attachment-oriented and not be anything like me, so it's hard to know. But interpersonal is probably a good word. There's not a lot of people that are gonna use that label in a, a flippant way. So those are the words I would look for, but it's hard to say because like when you go to directories of therapists, a lot of times they'll just, they'll list like 20 different theoretical orientations and, you, and you're just like, you couldn't possibly be all those things, could you? The other thing is um, you ask me, you know, when will I know that it's the right person? Well, like I said, Within five sessions-ish, again, maybe in the first five minutes, but I would give it five sessions to see. And this relates to my learning how to play guitar or piano. I did not learn how to play guitar, drums, piano in a night or in a week or in a year. It took me years to learn how to play them, and I'm not even that good at any of them. So, But I just did it because I wanted to do it, and I... It was its own reward. Well, finding a good therapist, shopping around for a therapist is its own reward, especially if you can afford it. Other kinds of things you might want to ask yourself. Do you feel safe? Do you feel like they understand you? Do, does the therapist seem competent? Are they professional? Do they give you a disclosure statement from the beginning? Do they answer your questions well? That's actually a pretty good one. A lot of people will email me even though they're in therapy and they'll say like, well, I don't know, my therapist did this, I don't know what to do. And I always say, just ask your therapist. Your your therapist is trained and is being supervised or they're consulting to be able to answer tough questions with you. Questions like, I don't know what therapy is doing or I didn't like what you did last week. Those kinds of things, therapists are specifically trained. They're some of the only people on the planet who are supposed to be good at that. Plumbers, I'm guessing, aren't trained like that. Politicians certainly aren't. We, we are trained specifically with the ability to honor clients' questions, honor their concerns, uh, take into account our own countertransference, meaning that we have to question our own assumptions about our clients. We might have a notion like, oh, this client doesn't know what they're talking about. And then we have to very quickly check in with ourselves. What kind of countertransferential, what thing in my history as a therapist is influencing my perception of this client right now? My duty is to this client. My ethical and professional and moral duty is to help this client feel safe, understood, and valued. And I'm going to answer their question as best I can. So just ask the therapist on the phone, in person, just say, so I have a lot of suspicion about therapists. How do I know you're the right one for me? And if, if, a, if a client asked me that, I'd be able to answer that. Now, I don't know if I'd be able to answer it in a way that they would like, but I, I welcome questions like those are excellent questions. I'd much rather have a client ask me those questions and give me a chance to answer them than to keep them secret. The other thing to think about is what do you want out of therapy? 
This is extremely important that you think about. Now, sometimes you might have kind of a vague notion about what you might want from therapy, but at the very least, you should have some notion. You shouldn't just be like, I have problems, I'm going to therapy. You should, be, you should have goals in mind. Now, you might have very specific goals, like I, I want to not have major depression anymore, or I want to not have OCD anymore, those kinds of goals. But they also could be very amorphous, like I want to feel less demoralized, or I want to explore who I am, or I want to feel less sadness and less anger. My cat wants to join in. What? Or I want to feel hope for the future. Or I want my cat to listen to me when I'm talking. <laughs> I, want to f- I want to improve my self-esteem. I want to recover from my trauma. What? I want to grieve the death of my mother. Or I want to grieve the end of my divorce. Um, you know, I want my relationships to be better, these kinds of goals. And once you have those goals, then you have a really excellent way of determining whether or not a therapist is good for you or not. One, right from the beginning, you just ask them, my goal is to improve relationships. How are you going to do that for me? Now, you don't want to just yell at them, but, you know, give them a chance to answer the question. If they can't answer the question, then I don't know, like, Uh, And therapists out there, get good at answering these questions. A lot of people, I've seen a lot of therapists who get real angry when clients ask them questions like this. I've heard therapists say things like, yeah, you know, this client just just started asking me, confronting me, like, you know, what is therapy for anyway? And so I just told them, you know, that this session is over. And I'm like, What? You had a client that asked you what therapy is for and you were offended by that? That is an excellent question. If, if, if a physician says, I'm going to do surgery on you, and the patient is like, wait, what is the surgery for? You don't want the physician to be like, okay, this is over. I don't want you questioning my methods. Now, I don't blame therapists because a lot of them aren't trained well or supervised well enough to be able to answer those questions, and they might even have hostile attitudes about clients in general. This is why some therapists suck and you should avoid them, and this is why you might have to shop around for a while. But anyway, so just ask. Just say, I want to improve relationships. How are you going to help me with that? I'm curious. And then maybe session three, session four, you're thinking, wait, I feel like I still don't really understand what you're doing. I I want to improve my relationships, and I feel like you haven't done that yet. I feel like you've just asked me a lot of questions or I don't really like the way that you're doing – I don't like the way that you're helping me improve my relationships. Can you help me understand, therapist, why you're doing this or could we change it to another thing? This is called the therapeutic alliance. It has been, it has been scientifically proven to be associated with positive outcomes in therapy. The elements of the therapeutic alliance is a bond or an attachment a agreement on the goals and agreement on the tasks to meet those goals. So in the beginning of therapy, make sure you spend a lot of time as a client. And if you're a therapist, spend a lot of time on this too, making sure that you understand what you're doing, what the goal is, and that you like each other and that you're listening well. And so those are some things to look for. And please, if you have it available to you, and Cressida, you are in Toronto, so you, I know there's tons of therapists there. I implore you to do that. Now, the other thing that I'll say is that some of you live – someone emailed me from Germany, I think, and said that in, in their country – I think it was Germany – that they pay for like a year and a half or a year of therapy, their insurance does – and then they don't get any therapy for two years unless it's extremely special circumstances like you're schizophrenic or something. And that bums me out too. So I don't know why I'm saying that, but um, there's just a lot of problems with access, I guess, is the problem. But if you have access, these are the things to look for. Now, I will say that if you are in a country where the insurance or even in the United States where you have limited sessions. You can get a lot done with limited sessions. I have had very powerful 10-session bouts with clients before where they only had 10 sessions with me to do, and 
we did uh, a lot in those 10 sessions. So it's not like it's worthless. Now, a lot of therapy that a lot of you are looking for tends to be on the long-term sense, but it, but it's not um, impossible to get something done in a shorter amount of time as well. Anyway, let's go on to another email. Actually, no, let's take a break first. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast yet, you might want to consider that. If you just heard commercials, that's because you're not a patron. When you become a patron, you don't have to listen to commercials. That's kind of nice, right? All right, this next email is from Rosie from Port Orchard. She writes, I've got some questions surrounding sexual addiction. Can you possibly explain what sexual addiction actually is, the signs of it, what can cause it, typical treatment options, and maybe some good non-threatening ways to bring it up to a partner if you think they may be struggling with it? End of email. Yeah, sex addiction. So addiction basically means compulsion. And by compulsion, we mean uncontrollable urge, essentially. So sex addiction is not a term that therapists will use typically. We might use the term hypersexual disorder. It's actually not in the DSM. It almost got in the latest DSM, but it's not. But there is research around hypersexual disorder, and so we, we might use that term. Sexual addiction, there's, addiction is a really loaded term, and it's, it's used in a lot of weird ways. And some people actually prefer not to use the word addiction when it comes to behavioral compulsions. And so you'll, experts will typically use sexual compulsion sex, you know, or hypersexual disorder, that kind of thing, compulsive sexual urges. So what is it actually? Well, it's like any other compulsion, an uncontrollable urge to do something related to sex in the same way that so-called gambling addiction is an uncontrollable urge to gamble. So with hypersexual disorder or sex addiction, as it's you know commonly understood to be called, uncontrollable urge to do something regarding sex, looking at porn, masturbating, talking about sex, trying to have sex with strangers uh, consensually, pressuring your partner to have sex, driving around and shopping for sex workers, this sort of thing. Now, I want to stress that it is not an amount. So many people believe that if you masturbate a certain amount of times per week, then that constitutes sex addiction or masturbation addiction or porn addiction. If you look at porn for three hours a day and masturbate five times a day, then clearly you are addicted to porn. That is not what addiction is. Compulsion addiction is not an amount. Take it from me. I've treated people with various different behaviors, and I'm here to tell you that the definition of compulsion is that it causes distress and that it's uncontrollable, which I'll get into more later. So you could, you could suffer from compulsive sexual issues and only exhibit behaviors once every two months. But the urge is so strong and it interferes with your life to, interferes with your life to such a degree that we, we would qualify the person for the, the issue. For the, for the label of compulsion. Another person could, like I said, look at porn three hours a day and masturbate five times a day, and they don't have any negative side effects, and they're happy with that. Their, their life isn't impacted in any negative way, and they're fine with it. And when they reflect on it, they're like, yeah, yeah, it seems like a lot, but I don't know. It's kind of the lifestyle that I like to have. Now, in our society, we shame sex completely, and so the notion that someone can masturbate five times a day and not be considered as having a problem is extremely weird. Now, why is that weird to society? It's not weird to sex experts, by the way, but it is weird to society. And why is that? Because we live in an incredibly screwed up sexual society. We are incredibly screwed up. We like to think that we're, we are. It's like, oh, it's 2020. We're way beyond stuff like that. No, we're not. In 100 years, people are going to laugh at how puritanical and how Victorian we all were back in 2020. So do not equate the amount that people do with a disorder. People can go 
golfing three times a week. That doesn't mean they have golfing disorder. But if someone had an uncontrollable urge that they couldn't control to go golfing and it ruined their life, then we'd call that a golfing compulsion. So addiction is compulsion. Addiction is not amount. Just want to be very clear about that. Also, uh, sexual addiction or sexual compulsion is extremely different from cheating on your partner with a number of different people and then getting caught. Tiger Woods, Bill Clinton, I've heard these people, I don't know, themselves or other people, labeling them as having being a sex addict. You know, I'm, I'm getting help for my sex addiction. Now, maybe they did have sex addiction or they just cheated a lot because they wanted to and they got caught. Cheating a lot and getting caught is not a sexual addiction. Masturbating when your partner doesn't want you to masturbate is not enough information for us to, to know if the person suffers from a compulsion or not. So doing things that other people don't want you to do does not uh, constitute a compulsion. Also, if you're a sexual offender and you are committing sexual crimes and then you get caught and you can't necessarily claim, oh, it's because of an addiction. It could just be because you have an issue that means that you don't care about other human beings. Anyway, the point is, is that cheating or sexual offending, these aren't necessarily sex addiction, but a lot of people these days will say that because I think it, it lessens the stigma to cheat a lot, you're a, you're a terrible human being. But if you have a sex addiction, then you have, people have sympathy for you, right? Or if you're a person who just likes having sex a lot and you live in a society that doesn't let you, particularly if you're a woman, and you like to have sex with a different person every night, and you are labeled a sex addict because of that by society. But that is not sex addiction. That's a choice. You are saying, I, as a woman, I want to have sex with a different dude every single night. And there's nothing wrong with that. Now, it might be evidence of something wrong with that, but we have to take into consideration our massive culture of sex negativity. If someone wanted to read a book every night, we wouldn't automatically say, oh, well, clearly it must be something wrong with that. So you can have safe, consensual sex every night. Now, not many people do, but the point is, is that, again, it's not an amount it's not a. Uh, it's not how it feels to you. If something, if something sexual feels bad to you, it's not an indication that it is bad. It could be an indication of the propaganda that you have internalized. Okay, so you ask about the signs of sex addiction. Well, it's like any other addiction. The person will uh, feel like they're doing too much of it, and they will try to resist the urge to do it, and they will fail often. It's similar to alcoholism or cigarette addiction. You try to stop and you just can't. It just the, the itch builds inside of you and you just have to scratch that itch. People will put a lot of efforts into hiding it. It'll interfere with their life somehow. It often is progressive, meaning that over time it increases in intensity and or uh, negative life effects and or frequency, etc., tends to get worse over time. People are chasing a high. It takes more to get the same kind of pleasure. There's often a lot of regret afterwards. And generally speaking, the person will attest to the fact that they're, they're, they're just not in control of their behavior. That's the definition of a compulsion. You can have compulsive hair pulling, compulsive eating, compulsive tapping on the wall, compulsive turning the light switch on and off, compulsive running back home and checking to see if your, if your stove is on, compulsive counting. We, we have a definite capacity for compulsions as humans because it's a very common thing, and sex could be that thing. So you ask about the cause. Well, it can be hereditary. There seems to be some hereditary, uh, not sex addiction per se, but addiction in general, compulsion in general. But generally, it's usually caused by childhood mistreatment and or sexual abuse at some point in your life. It could also be caused by medication or brain injury, and there's other causes as well. I once had a client who, because of a medication for um, Parkinson's, because it has the medications for Parkinson's often have to do with the um, dopamine center, and that has a lot to do with your urges and so people who take these kinds of meds will sometimes develop a compulsion. I think 
if I remember right, according to research, most of the time it's like a gambling compulsion. But some people will develop a sexual compulsion as well. And so this guy had never had a sexual compulsion before, started taking this Parkinson's med, and instantly had sexual compulsive behavior where he would drive around at night searching for sex workers all night long. He would never interact with them, but he just had this uncontrollable urge to get into his car, sneak out from his family, and just like talk to sex workers on the street. And he would look through the not uh, like the local papers and try to and he'd call them and he he's just he'd do it all night long and it would it would provide it was this an uncontrollable itch for him and he would try to resist it but then some some nights he just couldn't resist and he would he'd be out there on the streets he'd come home and he'd be utterly ashamed utterly regretted regretful of everything that he had done and it was affecting his marriage now, what I had to do was look into it and figure out, oh, it might be this medication, and then help the wife understand what was really happening, because she thought it was him not wanting to be with her. Anyway, so treatment options. Well, there's Sex Addicts Anonymous, which can often help, and it's a 12-step program similar to Alcoholics Anonymous, and that can help for sure, and I've had clients go there. Also... The, the main thing, though, that I've had to do, because I've had people come to me saying, I, I'm a sex addict, I need to talk with you. In, in the first number of sessions, often what I have to do is I have to determine if they actually have sex addiction, if they actually have a, a real compulsion. Because a lot of people think they have sex addiction in our society when they don't, as I was saying earlier. So a lot of the treatment for me involves differentiating between just shame about their own sexuality. You know, let's actually, I've had clients like this in the past before. So in our society, we are uh, homophobic. We, we are, we're getting better, but we're generally afraid of homosexuality, gay, lesbian, bi people. And we think that there's something wrong with them. And so people will internalize that. And as they start to feel urges, to do non-heterosexual vanilla kinds of things, they will, this internalized voice will kick in and they'll be very ashamed of themselves and they'll try to tamp it down. But their inner nature will want to emerge. They have these urges, these normal sexual urges, but they don't want to act on it. And they start developing these interesting ritualistic tamping down methods and it'll sneak out every once in a while and they'll be really regretful of it. And they might even get married. And they will get caught by their spouse and their spouse threatens to leave them because they're doing these things every once in a while. And then they come to me and they say, I have this uncontrollable urge that is ruining my marriage and I can't stop. Okay. So from that description, we'd go like, oh, okay. Classic compulsion right there. But when we start digging down into it, we might discover collaboratively that the client is bisexual or gay or something. And we learn that a lifetime of trying to deny themselves their own sexuality has resulted in what feels like compulsive behavior, but really is behavior that's more in line with their own needs. If, if I am deadly thirsty for a glass of water, I don't say I have a compulsion of drinking. I have a need for water. People have a need for sexuality, usually, not all the time. And they have a need for the kind of sex that are, is in line with their own sexuality. Heterosexual people want to have sex with people of the other gender, uh, same sex. You know, anyway, the point, you get my point. So, so in that situation, it might take us a year or two of, expo- of exploring the internalized homophobia that they've experienced. The, all the notions, trying to differentiate between are they – gay? Are they bi? Are they, you know, what's going on? Is it some weird sexual quirk that is compulsive? It can take a long time to explore that. And I've done that. With, I've done that with clients. So that's a big step because if someone comes in and says, I have a compulsion around smoking cigarettes, well, we don't really have a lot of culture that would create false compulsive notions in people about cigarettes. We do have a lot of culture in North America that will make people feel like they're compulsive when 
They are just shaming themselves for being who they are. Um, another example is people might come to me and say, I'm a sex addict. I need help. And then we sit down and I, and I ask them, okay, what's going on? And they say, well, I am looking at porn and I'm masturbating. And I'll say, okay, well, how often? And they're like, well, once every couple months. And I'll say, okay, wait, wait. So once every couple months you look at porn and you masturbate. All right. So what's going on there? They're like, well, uh, according to my religion, I can't do that. And my wife doesn't like it. And my, you know, and, and I, it's this uncontrollable urge. I, I can't uh, seem to resist it. I feel extreme shame afterwards. I've tried to cut back and I can't. So these are all the classic signs of addiction. My marriage is falling apart. My, my spiritual life is falling apart. So this is the impact to your life, negative impact to life. So he fits all the criteria for an addiction or a compulsion. But again, we have to drill down on that a little bit and say like, well, so maybe it's the, your society is not in line with who you are. Now, it might seem kind of funny to say that your sexual orientation is occasionally towards porn and masturbating, but that can be a legitimate uh, you know, kind of a sexual activity that one would have in their repertoire that they kind of need to do. Uh, we tend to privilege heterosexual missionary style sex when it comes to uh, saying, well, that's normal. And, and then the further you get away from that, the more you consider it to be abnormal. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that you have to put up with this behavior in your partner. If you have a partner that that masturbates and looks at porn, and according to you, you consider that to be immoral or cheating or something, that is your choice. Is 100% your choice. It is always, and I've worked with people like that before. I've worked with couples where one partner is like, nope, no masturbating, no looking at porn. It's immoral. It's terrible. And the other partner is like, well, I don't know. I'm a little bit looser on that. And we have to have a conversation about that. And as a couples therapist, I value both people. And I'm just there to help them to communicate about it. I'm not there to uh, proselytize my own cultural notions about porn and masturbating. The point is, is that we, as we go into those conversations, we have to recognize that we have been pumped a lifetime of sex negativity. And so is it really in my bones that I don't want my partner to masturbate occasionally? Is that really who I am or do I just adhere to that notion because that was what was pumped into me by a sex negative society or religion for that matter? So, uh, but maybe you want to go along with that. Maybe, yes, okay, I agree. My religion has pumped me with certain notions of sex negativity, but I choose to adhere to that because that's my choice and it is your choice. Everyone gets to make their own choice. And this is why couples need to talk about these issues before they get married and before they uh, you know, dedicate themselves to a, a long-term relationship uh, because uh, you deserve to have a partner who values your own sexuality, if that makes any sense. So if you like to masturbate and that's a part of your sexual repertoire, something to talk about with someone when you're dating. You know, date some, you know, date 25, say, so by the way, I masturbate occasionally, look at porn, just want to know your thoughts on that, because I kind of like it. <laughs> now, a lot of people, the other partner will just be like, yeah, me too, I dig it too, or yeah, go for it, I don't care. Um, how about we do it together or whatever. Other people, I don't like that. That's a big deal to me. You know, so it's, it's a matter of compatibility. And because we live in a sex negative society, people don't talk about it enough up front. And then they find out about it 20 years down the line, and now you're stuck together, and you have completely different morals and uh, ethics around these kinds of issues. So anyway, uh, so yeah, so that's, so when the treatment options involve actually determining whether or not it's a compulsion at all to begin with, which can be very, very complicated. Um, but if it is an actual compulsion, and which it sometimes and often is, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy in general uh, will work in terms of, um, well, I'm not going to go into all the details, but just know that CBT is, is used a lot. Also trauma therapy, because a lot of these compulsions come from traumas and trauma recovery is important for people. Also addiction oriented therapy. I used to work for a organization that treated uh, people for their addictions and uh, I was the um, the psychotherapist involved 
and I would work alongside with the addiction specialist people. And so with, you know, people who suffer from heroin addiction or uh, Percocet addiction or alcohol addiction, marijuana addiction. And there's a, there's a whole, there's a whole treatment protocol that generally works that in, you know, in a nutshell, it's pretty elaborate, but in a nutshell, it involves becoming aware of your triggers and then managing those triggers, making sure that you have support, making sure that you're never bored because boredom often leads to the immersion, the, you know, the, uh, your emerging compulsive urges. Also finding other things to soothe yourself, et cetera. There's a whole system that you, uh, enter into that takes a long time to develop and ha- habit forming these kinds of things so so that you can try to eliminate those behaviors and create new behaviors a lot of it has to do with self-soothing when we uh, do these kinds of compulsions they tend to wash our brain in a lot of good feelings uh, you know cocaine alcohol uh, sexual compulsion itching um, even like when you have the urge to flip the light switch on and off, it's usually a, an effort to soothe the self. And so if we have other ways to soothe the self, then we don't have to resort to those other things. Um, anyway, there's a whole elaborate, you know, to, to, to fully discuss addiction treatment would take too long. But anyway, and then your final question here is, what are some non-threatening ways to bring it up to a partner if you think they may be struggling with it? Well, the first thing is, is don't assume you know that they have a sex addiction because you, you, you didn't give any details and you, maybe you're just asking for a friend, quote unquote, I don't know. But if you have questions about a partner with that you would frame as sexual addiction, I wouldn't label it in your mind as sex addiction. I would really walk that back and I would get to a place of like, well, what behaviors are you seeing and how does it affect you? That's the main thing, because if you're concerned about it, you're probably concerned about how it's affecting you. You might feel threatened. You might be hurt. You might be worried about the future. You might be worried about what they're not telling you. Those are all valid feelings to have, given what you've seen. That's what you communicate. You say, I've seen you do this. I've seen you do that. I think you might be doing this. I'm not sure. I, I wonder about this. And it hurts me. It worries me. I'm sad. I'm, I, these are the feelings I'm having. Stick to that. Don't say, you have sex addiction, you need to talk to someone. Unless you absolutely know they have sex and they agree they have sex addiction, there's no point in saying that. And frankly, you probably don't know. Because often when I get these kinds of questions, uh, it, they're observing a behavior in their partner that they just don't like. Their partner, uh, often what it is, is their partner is looking at porn and masturbating. Um, or something, or cheating, or something like that. It's unlikely that if you're seeing porn and masturbation or cheating, it's unlikely that it's sex addiction. It could be. It very well could be. But sex addiction is so particular, and the person hates it. <laughs> People with sex addiction, they don't like the fact that they have sex addiction. You can have compulsive masturbation, and when you talk to, I used to smoke cigarettes and 99.9% of the cigarettes that I smoked, I hated every single one of them. I had a compulsion to smoke cigarettes. Now, if you got in the way of me smoking a cigarette when I needed one, I would have pushed you down, (laughs) which makes it look like I want to smoke a cigarette, but I did not want to smoke a cigarette. I did. I hated sucking those things down. They were awful. And one of the most uh, hardest things I ever did in my life was quitting smoking. It really, it took me three years. I was a therapist at the time. I used to see clients and have to, in between clients, I'd have to run outside and have a cigarette. It was awful. And so uh, just because you're seeing something so if your partner has sex addiction, they will probably be happy to say, I have a problem. I can't control this. I've been trying to control it and I can't. So anyway, the point is, is that just stick to how their behavior is impacting you. 
one, you deserve to have that heard. And two, that's all you really know. You can't really comment more on that in all likelihood. Also, go to a therapist. I urge people in situations, when people email me questions like this, all I can think of is like, well, you probably don't have a therapist, otherwise you wouldn't be asking me about this, right? How in the world can anyone navigate things like this without a therapist? You need a therapist for yourself, for the couple, for him. Y'all need therapists. All right, well, what else can I say? Well, I want to be clear that people can be harmed if I haven't been very clear about this, people can be absolutely harmed by their partner's sexual behavior. So I'm not, uh, whenever I give these nuanced conversations that have a lot of details, sometimes people walk away with this notion that I'm saying, you're supposed to just accept everything that your partner does, sexually speaking, that we're all supposed to be liberated, sexual, polyamorous people. And that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that you are in, absolutely entitled to your preferences in a partner regarding sexual behavior. And you have every right to feel how you do, and you have every right to ask for what you want. And we all should look at how society is limiting us by sex negativity. But that doesn't mean you have to change your preferences. It just means that we all deserve to broaden our horizons from the sex-negative culture that we emerge from. But you don't have to. You don't have to broaden your horizons. You could limit your horizons more if you wanted to. That, that's your choice. And it's incredibly important that you have conversations with your partner about these sorts of things. It, oftentimes what happens in these situations, like some cheating happens or you're caught doing something, and there's this emergency, there's a label that's slapped on there, that person has to go to Sex Addicts Anonymous, and then everything's fine, right? Well, what usually is a better approach is let's go to a sex therapist, a certified sex therapist. And if you want to become a certified sex therapist, you can come to my campus at Antioch, my program, Couple and Family Therapy. We certify people in sex therapy. Go to a certified sex therapist or a couples therapist that understands sexuality well, of which um, someone like me, I'm not a certified sex therapist, but I've talked with many, many people about sexuality and helped them. Uh, it's a very complicated thing is the thing. Like it is not five sessions. Sexuality, if you want to get into that, uh, in my experience, it is many sessions, many conversations. Um, a lot of people who have issues regarding this have tremendous traumas and shame and complications and libido uh, issues. So it's very important to take the time to really explore it, to um, you know, be able to talk about it. it. It's such a central part to most people's lives, and yet we almost never talk about it in a mature way. It's similar to food. There's a lot of things around food and body image that are around this as well. It's so important to so many people, and yet we have the, the most adolescent way of talking about these things in our society. So it's, so anyway, uh, if it, your preferences are yours and you're entitled to them um, and you deserve them, but it doesn't mean that your partner is a sex addict because their values and their behaviors don't align with what you would like them to do. So have conversations, um, you know, give it a shot, have compassion for yourself, have compassion for others. All right, let's go into another email. All right, this next email is from Giselle. She writes, in, and I'm just going to summar summarize the email. She sent me a link to a YouTube video about Moxie. It's an AI robot for kids. It's like a little... Uh, it's like a maybe a foot and a half high, and it has uh, it looks really eerie. It looks like something you would see in a Black Mirror episode or something. And you know, if you Google it on YouTube, Moxie, the child robot, and you give it to kids who are young, five, six, seven years old, and and they can have private conversations with this thing. Think of it like a complicated Siri or something. <laughs> And it's designed to, in the commercial, they have the child confiding in the robot, saying like, 
I'm sad about this. And then Moxie's like, sometimes it, you know, would you like a hug? And these guys, it, it gets a little eerie. Or they'll have Moxie play games like, let's play a word game together, this kind of thing. So I don't know much about this. I, I would have to see the research. But from my from my very initial viewing of it, yeah, it looks weird. Giselle also thought it looked weird. And it it has it's it looks too it looks like it the commercial almost looks like they're like a preview for a movie maybe it is a preview for a movie and it's one of those viral videos that moxie the movie where the the ai robot attacks the kid or something i'm guessing it's not but anyway but honestly a lot of things have looked weird to me in the past i mean the first time i'm old enough to remember when cell phones were weird and when i saw the first adult walking down the street talking on a cell phone me and everyone around thought it looked really weird and uh, you know if you're old enough like me you remember that you remember you know remember that there was that guy just walking down the street talking on a cell phone like who mr important guy now of course today it's just like that's just what we do so back then we would have pathologized that guy and now we don't or a teenager. I remember when it was absurd to think that a parent would buy their kid a cell phone. It was absurd. What in the world would a 13-year-old girl need with a cell phone? That's excessive. It's giving kids access to things that they don't need, blah, blah, blah. Now, if you don't give your kid a, a cell phone, sometimes that's seen as abusive as well. Uh, virtual virtual reality headsets look weird on people, but eventually, you know, we get used to it. So is Moxie one of those things? I don't know. I have to recognize that tech, some technology in my lifetime has looked weird to me and I've judged it. And then later on, I don't judge it anymore. So maybe everyone will have their own personal robot in 10 years and it'll just be one of those things. The other thing I'd like to see is I want to see how kids actually use this thing because in the YouTube video, it's an advertisement for Moxie. And by the way, I think this Moxie is like one or $2,000. So I can't imagine a lot of people buying this thing. But I'm guessing eventually it'll, it'll come down in price, right? It's just a matter of time. But I'd want to see actual kids using this thing because I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect that a lot of kids, if not most kids, would totally understand that's not a real thing. Because in the commercial, it it makes it look like this robot, the kid believes this robot is a real creature and having conversations with it. I suspect that most kids would quickly realize that this thing isn't isn't like a real person because AI is not very good at this point. Contrary to popular beliefs, AI is far from the point of passing the Turing test. Now, I know some of you are like, well, there's this example, there's this example. I challenge you to actually yourself sit down with an AI and have a free-flowing conversation with it, especially non-text-based like this, this, you know, this robot is having a, a verbal conversation with you, that over time, you don't learn, oh, th- there's a routine here. If I stick to the script, this thing can appear like it has intelligence. But if I go off script at all, this thing quickly loses its place and will have very strange answers. Just as an example, talk to your Siri or your Google Assistant or something. It's uh, Or what Alexa, these things. I'm probably triggering everyone's devices right now. I'm sorry about that. Those things are in the direction of AI. And if you watched a commercial for it, you'd be like, oh, my God, those devices, they're just like a, like a secretary or a, or a butler or something. These things, you just ask it a question or you tell it what to do, and it just does it. That's crazy. All of us know that these devices are so frustrating. A third of the time, they do not understand what you're saying or they kick on when you don't want them to. They barely understand our voice, which makes sense. It's a very complicated thing. Humans, human minds <laughs> and communication and empathy and deciphering what you're trying to say is so complicated. I mean, humans have a hard time with it. Machines are far from that. So I suspect that these things, if you actually sat a kid down with it, 
it'd be pretty quick that the kid would be like, oh, this thing doesn't really get me, especially the way humans get me. And so, okay, I get it. I can play these little games with this thing, but, uh, but I can't depend on this thing to be an attachment figure. But maybe, I don't know. In the future, this definitely is a question. I mean, whether Moxie is a thing, which I doubt it is because we don't have that technology AI-wise yet. But, but I suspect that, or I, I'm positive, that at some point in the future, 50 years from now, 150 years from now, there will be this question. We will have the capacity to uh, purchase for a very cheap amount of money because it's basically just code, right? That uh, A device that will absolutely trick us into thinking that it's a – it's a creature. And maybe at that point, ethically, it is a creature. Think about Her, the movie, with Joaquin Phoenix and uh, uh, Johansson, Scarlett Johansson. Uh, it, eventually, we're going to be there. We're far from that. I'm guessing I'm going to die before, well before we see that. Now, according to uh, you know the internet, we're like two years away from that. We are not. Talk to any expert on AI. We're far from that point. I don't know the time span, maybe there'll be some advances, but it's just really hard to create a human mind in a machine. So, but it is a question that we're going to have to, you know, address at some point. So the implications for this moxie thing at this point is if we start giving these things to kids, say five, 10 years from now, a lot of the kids have these sorts of things. Is this just going to be one more thing that's going to separate people from each other? Uh, just one more device, one more mechanical device that keeps our attention, that keeps us away from each other, keeps kids away from their friends, from going outside, from their parents, gives parents a chance to catch up on more emails, that are, their work is working them to the bone, this kind of thing. Um, are, uh, but the other thing that I thought of was, are these things a better alternative to what they're already being attached to, which are screens. It's playing these games, you know, looking at these, whatever kids use on these screens, you know, kids YouTube or kids Netflix, this kind of thing. Is it better that they actually have what kind of looks like another creature and they interact with it rather than looking at a screen all day? Maybe it's better because it's not like kids are not participating in things that are uh, potentially not good for them at this point. So maybe it's the lesser two evils. I don't know. Now, some indication seems their early indication seems to be that some of these devices might actually help people that need social skill development, people on the autism spectrum, for example. It might be easier for them to practice on these machines and then generalize those skills and the, and that trust and that self esteem to actual humans or kids who are isolated right now. Pandemic, maybe it's like well. I'd rather have the kid running out, running around outside with the neighbor kids, but they can't do that right now. So I guess Moxie is going to be a, a the next best thing. Um, also, these devices might be used for educational purposes. If they really keep the attention of the kid, you could really design it like screens. A lot of people use, you know, you, you get for your seven-year-old a particular game that is really fun to them, but also teaches them how to do math or teaches them geography, this kind of thing. It's also possible that these Moxie devices or devices like this might be used for diagnostic uh, purposes, how to catch certain emotional issues that the kids might be going through. Kids might talk to this thing more readily, who knows. But I could also see these things being used in the way that everything eventually gets used, which is to manipulate capitalism, capitalism, to manipulate us to buy things. Everything eventually gets manipulated into just extracting money from you. By the way, if you haven't become a patron of the podcast, do so now. Just joking. Um, <laughs> so, you know, everything eventually <clears throat> becomes an economic... Oh, something's really caught in my throat right now. Is that called moral? My, my own morals are caught in my throat? <laughs> um, anyway, so, yeah. I imagine that these things will eventually become bastardized to extract money out of kids or to, you know, manipulate them to uh, like brands of a certain kind. Who knows? Uh, but anyway, all right, let's go on to another email. Someone just asked me to talk about parentification. So I thought I'd just end with that here. 
So I don't have any notes in front of me, but off the top of my head, parentification is what happens when a family elects a child to become elevated in the hierarchy to be more like a parent, either to other kids in the family or even to the parents themselves. So the system is suffering in some way, and the system needs one of the kids to take on a role of a parent because usually because the parents or parent can't do that themselves. Maybe they suffer from addiction, trauma, they're working too much, uh, transgenerational issues, something's going on, and someone has to fill the role of the parent. And so sometimes it'll be the oldest sibling, sometimes not, it kind of depends. And that child will step into that role uh, subconsciously, voluntarily, if that makes any sense. So whenever we are elected to a role in a family, we're both pushed into it by the system and we also willingly go subconsciously willingly, usually. And so let's just say a common scenario, oldest sister is elected to be the parent. She's parentified. And uh, dad, mom and dad are divorced. Family doesn't see dad that often. Mom is depressed, works a lot, and it gets really flustered with the, with the three kids. And so the oldest uh, kid, the daughter, is in charge of taking care of, of the two younger siblings and also maybe even making dinner for mom or being an emotional uh, therapist almost for mom because mom has tr- trauma issues from her childhood. And so the parentified girl, she could be nine years old. You can parentify a seven-year-old. Um, it doesn't have to be an 18-year-old girl. So you know, let's say she's 14 years old and she, it, she feels a tremendous amount of pressure that she doesn't like to be over-responsible. These, these kids grow up really fast. They will talk in very mature ways, but they get denied their own childhood. So kids like this will have uh, the following common syndromes is they will want to actually, they feel safe when they're in control and they don't like it when other people are in control. So even if, so I've treated families like this and one of the things we try to do is we try to de-parentify the 14-year-old daughter. Well, she might kind of want that to happen, but she also might not want that to happen because she equates losing control with the family falling apart. She also gets some self-esteem from being in control. Being elevated in the hierarchy feels good. You get to say things. You get to boss people around. You get, a, you get certain things from that role that you, you don't want to give up. And so there's resistance sometimes from the parentified person. Parentified people grow up and they get married. They usually will become the over-functioner in the Boedian terms and will marry under-functioning people people who need to be taken care of. And then they will, depending on the level of undifferentiation or fusion in the individuals and the relationship, the overfunction of the parentified adult will want to socialize their partner to become even less functional over time because that allows the parentified person to play out that parentified side of the equation. It's a it's an unconscious thing usually. It, it feels safe to do that because that's how they learned how to love other people. They feel safe when they're in control. They feel safe when they have an incompetent underneath them. They feel safe when someone else is screwing up. And they don't feel safe when they don't have someone else to take care of because then they have to face themselves and they have to uh, be vulnerable, which is hard for them. And so, uh, so yeah, so they will resist. Usually there's, there's things they get out of it. Um, but obviously there's a lot of bad things they get out of it as well. They often will resent people a lot too, is they, particularly kids who are of a similar age as to when they were parentified. So let's say you had the 14 year old who started to become parentified around the age of 12. So from the age on, from the age of 12 on, she is denied her childhood. She's denied her teenage years. And she grows up and she has a kid and the kid turns 12. And the 12-year-old daughter of hers wants to act like a 12-year-old, but subconsciously deep down for the parent who used to be a parentified kid, resents the hell out of everyone who denied her her own 12-year-old 
lifestyle, if you will. The, the lifestyle of a kid who doesn't have responsibilities, who can still be a kid, who has people taking care of her. And this, so she grow, grows up, and then she has a 12-year-old girl, and that 12-year-old girl has, has similar wants. She's asking for a lack of responsibility that's age-appropriate. She wants to be taken care of all the time, which is age-appropriate. And the parentified mother resents the daughter for this and can't get over just how irresponsible and how immature her 12, 13-year-old, 14-year-old daughter is. And then I come into the picture and do, you know, after a while at assessment, I figure out, oh, so mom, you were denied your teenage years and you resent your own daughter for being allowed to have hers. So let's grieve the fact that you did not get your teenage years. You were treated unfairly. Let's grieve that. You deserve to grieve that, to grieve that death, if you will, and to get care and to get some reparation, some corrective experiences for that from me, not from your daughter, but from me. I will give you your ability to be 12. Tell me what your 12-year-old, your inner 12-year-old wants to say here, that kind of thing. And it can take a long time. And then that releases the, per- the parentified adult from being resentful and hostile to her own daughters. I've seen that. Anyway, so those are some brief things on parentification. All right. If you have questions about that, email me. Go to psychologyseattle.com and fill out the contact page. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself. And take care of other people because you deserve it. You really, really do.